us this morning. Oh, man, that's a great song. Wonderful truths packed in there. I don't know if you uh, have ever heard the word hangry before, but it's definitely a word that has been used to describe me at times. Now, if you're not familiar with this word, the idea uh, behind the word hangry is that you are hungry and your hunger causes you to be a little bit angry, a little bit irritated. And they call it hangry because it's a combination of the two. Now, as I define that word, let me just make sure you, you know what's happening when that happens to me here. Let me make sure it's, it's clear, all right? It would make perfect sense for a person to be hangry if they had not had food for a week, right? That makes sense. I'd be a little bit irritated. You would probably be a little irritated and on edge too if you had not had food for a week. But I can assure you that in my life, that is not the case. I am not hangry because I have not had food for a week. There's a very real chance that when I'm hangry, I did not miss a meal. I was able to fill my belly just a few hours earlier. And yet, at times, my emotions can be so erratic and so up and down that the slightest hunger pangs can cause me to be irritated and hangry. This happens. Now, you may not ever get hangry. You may not get irritated over your lack of food and over how your stomach is feeling. But human beings are notoriously fickle. We are up and down. We feel great in the morning, and we are exhausted by night. For some of you, it's vice versa. You feel terrible in the morning, and you're ready to roll at 11 p.m. at night. We are peaceful, watching the sunrise with our coffee in hand, and a few minutes later, we are having an experience of road rage, driving to work because Michigan drivers. It's what happens. We are up and down. We live our lives in a series, it seems like, of emotional swings back and forth. We ebb and flow like the tide. It's how we are. But I can assure you this morning that the God of Scripture, the God of the universe, does not experience those type of emotional ups and downs. He does not change. He is not fickle like we are. And he's not going to start being fickle now in this moment. Scripture over and over again talks about this. And I do not have my clicker with me this morning. So you guys are going to have to click through from the back. All right. So Psalm 102, 25 to 27 says this. Of old, you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. Malachi 3.6 says this, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And then in the New Testament, James 1.17 says this, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation 
or shadow due to change. He's always good. He's always pouring out his blessings on us, and that does not alter. That does not shift. That does not change from morning to night. One author put it this way when talking about God's immutability. The difference between the creator and creature hinges on the contrast between being and becoming. All that is creaturely is in process of becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving in search of rest and satisfaction and finds this rest only in him who is pure being without becoming. That's why we find our satisfaction and rest in God, because he doesn't change. He doesn't shift. He is our rock. He's firm and steadfast. And you see his faithfulness throughout Scripture. And you see it in the way that he promises something. He speaks a word, and that word is sure, and it is true. He says something, and then he delivers on that promise. And don't take that for granted as you read the Scriptures. God is faithful. And that brings us to our passage for today, which is Exodus chapter 12, if you want to turn there. If you're not already there, Exodus 12, and we'll start in verse 29. But as we get into this passage today, the entire book of Exodus has been building toward this moment. I mean, everything else in many ways has been an introduction to this moment that is about to happen. And when Israel finally departs Egypt, I mean, the whole thing's been building toward this, and they finally depart Egypt, and in many ways, it is stated so simply. It's just a few words. They, they left. They got out of there. And it's stated so simply that you can have a tendency to just sort of read through this passage and forget about everything that has been leading up to this point in the book. You can sort of read through it and move on and get to the next thing. But I want to camp out here this morning, and I want to connect the events that happen here back to what has happened earlier in the book of Exodus, and then we're going to sort of zoom out more and we're going to connect these events back to the storyline of Scripture, because we're going to see how incredibly consistent and how incredibly faithful God is to his word, to his promises, and to his covenant. And so today in Exodus 12, we're going to see three ways that God shows his faithfulness by delivering his people. Three ways that God shows his faithfulness by delivering his people. And the first one of those is that he acts in the present. And this is verses 29 to 39. So as we talk about this story today, I want you to try to put yourself in the shoes of an Israelite who is in Egypt and who is packing up and getting ready to go. I want you to think about what is happening from that Israelite's perspective. And that's why we're talking about the present here in this first point. We've been in the book of Exodus for several months. I looked back this week and we started in January. And I'm amazed that we're already to chapter 12. I think I'm pretty happy with that here, that we're all the way to this point, right? So we've been in this book for several months and you, as we go through it, You may have forgotten some of the things that God said earlier in the book and some of the promises that he made. And he made those particular promises to this present generation of Israelites who are in Egypt. He spoke many of them to Moses, and then Moses communicated these promises to the people. And so they had heard these promises. 
And you can't understand God's faithfulness and consistency without connecting what happens in these verses back to what has already been spoken and already been said in the first part of the book of Exodus. And so as the book begins, God hears the groaning of his people in affliction and slavery in Egypt, and he sends them a rescuer, Moses. And listen to some of what God tells Moses, Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 10. Speaking to Moses at the burning bush, God says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, a few verses forward in chapter 3, verse 19, verses 19 and 20. Again, God says to Moses, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Now listen to a very specific promise that God gives to Moses to communicate to Pharaoh and to Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, of course, at this point in the narrative, Moses makes the journey back to Egypt and he tells the Israelites what God has promised. And look at what this says at the end of chapter four. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. This is before anything had happened, any of the ten plagues or ten signs. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the signs begin to happen, and Pharaoh hardens his heart, and the signs increase in intensity, and they begin to bring about destruction and death, and God makes a distinction between Israel and Egypt, and he protects his people, and things are developing along, and then we get to chapter 11, verses 4 through 6. I can't remember if I put this on the screen or not. I don't think so, so I'll just read it after chapter 11, in chapter 11, verse 4. So Moses said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. 
Chapter 12 and verse 12. Before the final plague happens, look what God says. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The point is, in all of this, God has not been unclear. He's been quite specific over and over again in the book of Exodus, God has told Moses and told the Israelites and told the Egyptians and Pharaoh, this is what I'm going to do. And now it's actually going to happen. Look at verses 29 and 30 of chapter 12. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Now just a minute ago, we read early on in Exodus about this great cry that the Israelites had because of the affliction that they were suffering. This is the same word that is used here to describe the Egyptians' great cry in the middle of the night when they discovered that someone in every house had been killed. And what God has done here, based on his word and on his promises, is he has brought about a complete reversal in the situation between the Egyptians and the Israelites. All of that is based on his word and his promises. And so because of this reversal, because the Egyptians have been put in the place where the Israelites were, Pharaoh does what he should have done a long time ago. But even as he releases the people, it's amazing to watch that he still tries to act like he's somehow in charge and somehow tries to maintain control. Look at verses 31 and 32. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said and be gone and bless me also. So he does, I want you to notice several things that he does in these verses. First of all, he tells them to go and serve the Lord. This has been a major theme in this book. It's a movement from service of Pharaoh horrible service and slavery, to redemption, which is taking place right now, to service of Yahweh God. That's the movement of the book. And here, what you have is Pharaoh acknowledging that he is releasing Israel or that they are going out and they are now under the service of Yahweh God. He's acknowledging that they are out of his control. They're not his servants any longer. The second thing I want you to notice in these verses is look how Pharaoh says twice, once in 31 and once in 32, as you have said. I mean, Moses and Aaron have been telling him what to do, and they've been telling him what is required of him. And now he's actually saying, okay, everything you've said, I'm going to do. Everything they have demanded of him, he is giving into. Based on the word of God, he agrees to these things. 
And then finally, the reason I say he tries to maintain control here is notice at the end of verse 32 this sort of awkward, I think, request for them to bless him also. It's like he wants a little reward for finally giving in and doing what he should have done so long ago. Now, as Pharaoh sends them out, as he is ready to release them into the service of God and send them out from the the land, the people have been ready for quite a while, I think, to send the Israelites out. I mean, they were the ones begging him to get rid of them a few plagues ago, and now they are panicked to get rid of the Israelites. Look at verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. The people of Israel were ready for all of this because they had trusted God's promises and they had done what he said, and so they're ready to go when they are sent out and when they are pushed out by Pharaoh and by the people. Verses 34 to 36. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. The plundering of the Egyptians was promised back in chapter 3. It was promised again in chapter 11. And we'll see later on this morning, it was promised way earlier in Scripture that this would happen. And so, After all of this time in Egypt, after all of these signs, the Israelites with Egyptian gold and jewelry and clothing in hand, with their unleavened bread in hand, they pack up from the only home they had ever known. I mean, imagine that. They had all been born in Egypt. This is the only place they had ever lived. They'd raised their families there. And in one night, they pack up, they take everything they've ever known, and they head out. Look at verses 37 to 39. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. They baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Notice in verse 38, a mixed multitude went out. What this means, amazingly enough, is that there were people in this group that left Egypt who were not Israelites. They were not Jews. And so what had happened here is they had seen God's mighty hand. They had seen God say, I am going to do this and then do it over and over again. And they believed God's word. And so they were convinced that this was the true God and they were heading out of Egypt with the Israelites. Now, this is an early indication in Scripture that God's, the knowledge of God and God's purposes and His plan were never intended to only be for the Jewish people. There has always been a universal aspect to what God is going to do and to the redemption and the blessing that He is going to to bring. The starting point for this was with Abraham and with the Jewish people here, God's chosen people, but God's plan has never been limited to one nation. 
It's always been to bless the nations and to bring them in to the true knowledge of him and to reach the whole entire world. And a key element of the knowledge that these people had of Yahweh God at this point is that he is faithful. He's faithful to his word. He could say it and then he could follow through on what he said. And again, put yourself back in the shoes of an Israelite. That truth had been pressed home on them in a huge way. They knew God's faithfulness experientially at this point. It wasn't just something that they had heard about. They had seen it in action. And as they're walking out of Egypt, they had experienced his faithfulness. It had come to fulfillment in their own lives. Now, I think it's very easy to read something like this and to to think about God's faithfulness and to get excited about it, and then to have this be a, a disconnected story that happened a long, long time ago, and then to sort of not be able to make that jump from this story to God's faithfulness in our own lives, in our relationship with Him. And I want to remind you as we're reading this this morning The reason that we say that God's faithfulness is displayed as he acts in the present is because he acted in the present here, but he continues to act in the present in our lives. The same God who did all of this, who was faithful to his word here, is the the God who never changes. He's the immutable God. He has the same character and is the same faithful God that we serve today. And so he continues to work in our lives today. He can save that lost loved one. That is the type of thing that he does. He redeems from darkness into light. He rescues people. That's the God that he has always been. That is the God he is today. He can and will sanctify your heart in that battle against that particular sin that you're fighting against. That's the work that he does. He makes us holy. He changes us from the inside out. He will provide for your needs. He will meet your needs. He is faithful to his people in the present, just like he was faithful to his people in the present here in Egypt. And he's faithful in the present because of what he has said in the past. This is why we can trust him to do what he's going to do in the present because of what he has said in the past. And this is our second way that God shows his faithfulness. He remembers the past. Verses 40 and 41 almost are like a parenthesis here. It's like Moses sort of pauses and zooms out in the story to remind us that what is happening here is part of a much, much bigger picture. This has been happening for a long time, and God is bringing them out of Egypt after hundreds of years. This fits into a much larger story. Remember these words from Exodus chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people, this is before Moses, is at the burning bush. 
During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and then look at this, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He remembered his covenant that he had made with the patriarchs. He was concerned about Israel here because of promises that he had made hundreds of years earlier. The people had been in Egypt for 400 years. And if you take that time frame and go backwards in Scripture, you land in the book of Genesis and you land in the time of the patriarchs. God made a covenant with Abraham. And while making his covenant with Abraham, he said this in Genesis 15. Look at the screen here. And as the sun was going down, this is the covenant ceremony where God cuts a covenant with Abraham. A deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Even the silver and gold that Israel takes out of Egypt and plunders them is mentioned 400 years plus earlier with Abraham and this covenant here. And in this covenant, God makes this covenant with Abraham because of some very specific promises that he had made to Abraham in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, when Abraham really first comes onto the scene, God promises him three big things. He promises Abraham that I'm going to multiply your descendants into a great nation. I'm going to give your descendants a land to dwell in a promised land where I will be with them. They will be in relationship with me. And then the third thing he promises Abraham is that he is going to bless all the nations through Abraham's family. So three things, seed, land, and blessing. Three promises that God gives to Abraham in Genesis 12. Why those three promises? Well, if you trace the specifics of those promises back, they go back to the curses in Genesis chapter 3. The curse on the land, the curse on childbearing, and even having children, the difficulty of that, and then the curse of sin on all the earth. And God says to Abraham here, I am going to work through this covenant that I'm making with you, through your people as they're in this land, and I am going to bless all the nations of the earth. In other words, God is choosing Abraham and his people to be the instrument through which he undoes the curse of sin in Genesis 3. He's going to make things right in the world through this covenant. And the nation of Israel will be at the center of that work. And so the book of Exodus connects very closely to the book of Genesis. I mean, we told you at the beginning, Exodus starts with the word and. And it does that for a reason, because it's the next part of the story. And it's the same story. 
The book of Exodus connects to Genesis and continues the story of God's redemptive work and what he's going to do to undo the curse of sin. The promises that he made that a seed of the woman would come and that seed would come to crush the head of the serpent through Abraham and through his family. And so all of that means that God delivers Israel here after 400 years for a much, much larger purpose. There is way more going on here than just the Israelites getting out of Egypt. We'll see this in a few chapters when we get to Exodus 19, but in Exodus 19, God formalizes his relationship with Israel And he says, you are going to be my representatives, a kingdom of priests out in the world. And you are going to mediate my blessing to the nations. That was the purpose that he had for the nation of Israel. And so he delivers them out of Egypt to make them his holy people, to set them apart for his purposes, and ultimately to bring them into the promised land. The land is the next promise to Abraham that develops in Scripture, and it's the continuation of God's purposes. Now, the primary purpose of the land and of God bringing the Israelites into the land is not about them owning this little strip of real estate in the Middle East. The primary purpose of God bringing them into the land is so that they can dwell in God's presence, so they can be with him, so they can be his covenant people and then mediate those blessings out to the world. And so God does this work here, and Moses mentions the time frame in verses 40 and 41 to remind us of the bigger picture of what God is doing. He remembers the promises that he has made, and he continues to act based on those promises. Now, what's glorious about these realities here and these truths that we've just seen and this redemptive plan that God starts to unfold here is that you and I are clearly beneficiaries of God's faithfulness. I mean, we're, we're a part of this. This happens and we receive the benefits and the blessings of this, of God's faithfulness to his covenant promises to Abraham. And what's amazing is he's still not done extending those blessings and those benefits out into the world. What's he doing right now through the local church as the Great Commission is carried forward to every nation, every tribe, and every tongue? He is extending the blessings of covenant relationship with him out to the entire world. He's working to deliver people from darkness and transfer them to the kingdom of his son, and then they can be a light in the world so that one day God rules and reigns over his covenant people, not just over a little bit of land on the other side of the world, but over the entire world. That was the ultimate end of this promise to Abraham. The entire world would be under God's rule and reign. And they would dwell in relationship, covenant relationship with him and be his people and he would be their God. And we can be very confident that he is going to continue that work forward because of his past promises to Israel and then the way he worked in their future as well. This is the third way that God shows his faithfulness. He guides the future. He acts in the present. 
He remembers the past, remembers his redemptive promises, and then he guides in the future. So I want you to go back and put yourself once again in the shoes of the average Israelite who is packing up with unleavened bread and some Egyptian jewelry to leave Egypt on this day. So you know about God's faithfulness to his promises. You've seen it firsthand. You know about his covenant with Abraham and that he's working that out. You've seen how he is faithful and consistent during your lifetime and he is delivering your people. But what can you expect in the future? Is this going to continue for you, the Israelite leaving Egypt, and what's going to happen next? Well, what you can expect is more of the same faithfulness. In fact, once, once again, we see Israel is on the way out of Egypt. Already, God is already preparing them for what is going to happen next. He's already giving them instructions looking to the future. Look at verse 42. Speaking of the Passover, it was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt so This same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. In other words, God is saying, you need to keep this night throughout your generations because you need to remember what God has done in delivering you, and I'm going to continue to be with you as you celebrate this. And because this is remembered And reenacted, God wants them to celebrate it in a specific way. Look at verses 43 to 49. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. I I would assume that as I read that, you pick up on the very heavy emphasis here on circumcision. And you're like, what's the connection here? Why is circumcision so important in the future for taking of Passover? We'll get to that in a second. But notice also how God speaks of going into the land. And when they're in the land, he talks about them being a native of the land. He shall be, as in verse 48, as a native of the land. He's anticipating the time and looking forward to the time when Israel is already in the land. And so there are two major emphasis that I want to help you to see in this section. First of all, circumcision. It's very important to Passover. Why? Because circumcision is the sign of God's covenant with Abraham going all the way back to Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and the covenant that God made with Abraham, circumcision is still very important to the people here. Now, what's the point of circumcision? Well, it was to show that you were set apart for God and that you were a participant in the covenant that he had made with his people, that you were in relationship 
with him. And so there's a very close connection here between Passover and circumcision because the goal of God's deliverance of his people, bringing them out of the land, is to bring them into fellowship with him. It's not just redemption from the land. It's redemption from the land to enter into fellowship with him. And so you cannot continue to celebrate his deliverance if you're not in fellowship with him. Deliverance and fellowship go hand in hand. And so for the people going forward, they had to connect these two and remember these two. The second thing is God is giving them instructions for when they dwell in the promised land because that's their final destination. It's not just about getting out of Egypt. The whole narrative, the whole flow of this, all of the Pentateuch is aimed at fulfilling these promises to Abraham, which ultimately go back to the promises in Genesis 3. But it's a multiplication of descendants to a nation It's entering into the promised land that God has given them, and then it's mediating God's blessings to the nation. And so the purpose of redemption here is to get them out of Egypt and get them into the promised land. They are delivered to know God, to be in relationship with him, to dwell with him as his people. And so in all of these instructions here, in the background sort of operating is this assurance that they would enter into the promised land. God would be faithful to do what he said he was going to do. He wasn't just going to bring them out into the wilderness and leave them there. He would make sure they got to where they were going. He would be faithful to his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. How did they know he would be faithful? Look at verses 50 and 51. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. He did what he said he was going to do, and they were delivered. And so we, today, thousands of years later, which seems like a really long time to us, but just not a long time to God, we serve a God who is unchanging. He's consistent. He's reliable. He's trustworthy. His words can never fail. He doesn't promise haphazardly. He doesn't say he's going to do something and then fail to follow through on it. His promises are always true, and they happen. And he has been faithful in your present because of his past promises in the Bible And as you see his faithfulness in the present to what he has promised in the past, you can be assured that that will continue into your future. I'd like to finish by reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Man, isn't that so amazing a promise? Because I'm not there. I don't know about you, but I'm not there not even close, sanctified completely, made holy so that I can be in God's presence and fully enjoying him and free from sin and able to delight in God. 
And the prayer here is, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That seems like a crazy thing to expect, but Paul says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Because of past promises and his work in the present, you can be confident that this will happen in the future. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful this morning for your faithfulness. Sometimes it's hard for us to even understand how consistent you are because we are so fickle. We shift, we change, we go up, we go down, we go sideways. We are all over the map in our pursuit of holiness, in our emotional response, in our thinking. We change so often and so quickly. But you, Lord, are a rock, and you are faithful, and you are consistent. And we see that in Scripture. And so as we, as we think about Israel and think about your promises and the, the way in which you brought them to fulfillment, help this to, to solidify our belief and our trust in your faithfulness this morning. And then may we look to the future and expect you to continue to work and to do what you do in redeeming people and changing people, and bringing people fully into your presence, and and honoring and glorifying yourself. We're thankful for all you've done, Father. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.